Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Herman, or his home in Carlton. It's uh, July 16th, 2021. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, as you know, is why wine? Well, first of all, thanks so much for being here today to all three of you. It's great to have a chance to be part of this project that you guys are doing, which is so fantastic and such an important thing for the Oregon wine industry. So I really appreciate your hard work, and I'm sure people will um, enjoy this project for many years to come. So it's great to be a part of it. So thanks very much. Uh, why wine for me is uh, really kind of <clears throat> sort of the story of coming to Oregon. Uh, my folks immigrated from Europe in the 1950s uh, and they came to Oregon to uh, teach at what was then Oregon State College. And so I grew up in Corvallis in the 1950s and 60s, and there really, of course, in the 50s and, and very in the 50s and the very early 60s, there really wasn't an Oregon wine industry. That was just on the eve of of uh, Richard Summers coming up from California to Roseburg and David Lett coming up and Dickie Rath and all those people that were the pioneers. So when my parents came and we were living in Corvallis, uh, this the Willamette Valley looks an awful lot like. Western Europe where they had been born and had grown up so they were very pleased to be here and found the environment to be very congenial and they loved being in a university community as professors. The thing that was somewhat surprising to them was that nobody was producing wine here because where they had lived in Europe and France and in Germany and Switzerland in, in this sort of environment there was wine growing and had been wine growing going on for many centuries so that was even as a little kid I remember my father commenting that it was it struck him as odd that there wasn't a wine industry of course he didn't really have the whole history of prohibition and all that sort of stuff uh, in his mind, having grown up in Europe. But, but uh, because of that, when when Richard Summers came up from from Davis, and I think it was '61, and planted Hillcrest, uh, shortly after that, and I was a pretty young kid at that point. But my father was a was a botanist and, a, and an ecologist, a plant ecologist, and he spent a lot of time traveling around Oregon doing research. For his for his uh, for his work at Oregon State, and so he spent a lot of time in all parts of the state. And I can remember him coming back and saying, "Oh, you know, there's somebody who started a winery down in uh, down in Roseburg," and he was very excited about that. Um, and I remember going down there with him because I would like on school vacations and summer vacations, I would just travel with him. And I remember going there and seeing it just as a as a kid and just kind of being excited about it because before that. My father was so interested and excited about wine that very often for school vacations from the university, we'd go down to California and he would go to Napa and Sonoma and visit wineries because he was a big wine uh, uh, collector and really loved drinking fine wine. So to now see that there were going to start being wineries in Oregon was really exciting to him and, and to my mom. So you know you had you had uh, Hillcrest start and then of course David Lett started, in you know I mean they actually lived in. And I think they actually lived in Carlton for a couple of years. I don't know exactly where. And then they ended up getting that property and moving over there. Um, and I can remember my dad saying, oh, gosh, there's this new winery, you know, Irie. And let's go visit them in McMinnville and kind of going into that, you know, turkey, former turkey processing plant that they're still using. And so, you know, as a child, it was, it was, 
it was really something that was part of my experience growing up, and it was something that my parents were very interested and excited about. And we would travel very frequently to Europe because they had teaching positions in Europe. And so, you know, then you sort of juxtapose the very earliest moments, really, in the birth of the wine in industry here with going to Germany and France and Switzerland and Italy and just seeing this, you know, mm -hmm. of course, gigantic centuries-old tradition of winemaking. There was a lot of discussion in our family. I'm an only child, so it was just me and my parents. So. They would, you know, they would talk about, gee, I wonder if that's really going to take off here, and it really should because, you know, my dad was really, you know, into the whole thing with the soils and the plant genetics and all this kind of stuff. So he was coming out from a very scientific background, which, which I'll talk about when we get to the double zero portion of this because it's really had a big influence on what we've done. So, th so there was just this, you know, it, it wasn't, it, I mean, it wasn't as if that's all we talked about every day, but it was part of my experience growing up was. Was and we weren't, you know, directly participating in the wine industry at that point. But it was very much on my parents' radar screen. And so for me, growing up, it was always kind of a part of my life. And they, my parents were talking about wine. And my father was very excited because there was a, a, a importer distributor in Salem called Henny Hinsdale, and he was really excited because he would. So we lived actually just north of Corvallis in Lewisburg, which is out in the countryside. Um, and I can remember going with him to Salem because he would order cases of you know, really wonderful German Riesling and French wines and stuff. And so, you know, it was really interesting. Here we were in Oregon, the Lima Valley, and back in the 50s and 60s, th this was a very remote part of the world. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, there were television had just come, <laughs> come and radio, and I can remember my parents subscribing to the, to the New York Times, and it arrived four days after the date because it was mailed, right? So you really knew that you were pretty far out there. I mean, it was a beautiful place to be, to grow up, but you were very far out there. Anyway, so there was, so my dad was very excited when things started happening, like those great wines started being available. And then he started seeing people making the wine. And actually our family through, um, through one of my uncles had, had gone to graduate school with David Adelsheim's, um, yeah, with, with David Adelsheim's father, I think it was the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so through that connection, not so much me, but my parents knew David's parents and would get together with them once or twice a year. And so when he started his whole journey, and I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I think a little bit younger than he is. Um, so I can remember hearing the story, oh, you know, David is, you know, they bought that land and they're planning it. And everybody was like, wow, that's really amazing. I mean, you know, what a, what an incredible sort of, you know, those guys were sort of the wine entrepreneurs. <laughs> you know, you have, the, you have the sort of tech startups today, but they were really the first kind of, you know, startup, in a way, startup company people here in the Lyman Valley. So, you know, so for me, whoops, in my, as, as I said, as I was growing up, just kind of hearing about things, hearing about people, again, not being directly, but we didn't come rushing up here and, you know, help them put sticks in the ground or anything, but, but it was kind of part of my, you know, of my life growing up. And then I spent quite a bit of time in Europe, probably three or four years, sort of during college years and grad school years. And so uh, I can remember I was in university in, in Germany in a town called Marburg in one of their, kind of their old universities that was started in the 1500s. And uh, the first day I went to a seminar, I was probably like 19 years, 18 or 19 years old, and walked in there and it's kind of sat at a table like this and there were 10 people and the professor came in with a briefcase um, sat down, started talking to us, and he said, well, just a minute before we get going, it was like 10 in the morning, he pulls out a bottle of wine from his briefcase <clears throat> and says, okay, everybody has to have a glass of wine before we start. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a small thing, but you sort of see how something like wine kind of just gets woven into the fabric of your life. And then if you're living in France or in Germany and Switzerland, the places I lived, 
you know, again, it's just a part of it's a part of everyday life for one thing. But there's also this huge commercial aspect. You know, so this is sort of foreshadowing for me what we would see in the Willamette Valley, how an industry like the wine industry can become this hub mm -hmm. around which there's tremendous variety of economic activity. As we were talking about before we started on the camera, you know, you sort of these ecosystems develop of uh, you know different kind of service providers, different kind. You know, you have the hardware stores, the people that you know make the the end poles, the you know the surveyors, the bankers, the lawyers, the real estate people, the insurance people, the accountants, and so. All of that was something that I saw in Europe in these wine towns. Mm -hmm. um, and then, again, not knowing that it was going to really be repeated here, but it's really, in a sense, been repeated here in a very short period of time. So long answer to your question, but sort of through that period of sort of my childhood and adolescence and then college and then, you know, uh, studying overseas after college and just sort of having that whole kind of wine I mean, you know, sort of the wine experience of drinking itself, but also just being in a in a community and in a society where 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 the wine industry was a big part of, of you know, not only everyday life but a big part of the economy. And so then you have all the hospitality and the restaurants and you know all these pieces kind of come together, and that is, has now come to pass. It's still in an early form here, but you know, again, so all all of those sort of influences made wine be something that I was really very interested in. Um, but when I finished, so I, I, so I graduated from Corvallis High School in 1971, and then I went to college at a small uh, liberal arts college in Maine called Bowdoin College. It's actually where Jim Anderson, <coughs> excuse me, went to, went to college a little bit later than, than me, but Jim's, Jim's a typical Bowdoin College people are pretty, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty entrepreneurial, pretty, pretty interesting people. Anyway, so I went, so because I just wanted to see a different part of the world. So I went back to Maine and spent four years in college there. And then I spent several years in Germany, France, and Switzerland after that, and then came back. And I really liked being in Europe um, a lot. So I called up my dad and said, and I'd gotten a, like a Fulbright fellowship. So I was, you know, I'd sort of figured out how to support myself over there, but that all ran out. So I called my dad and said, uh, gosh, you know, um, and this was 19, what was it, 70? six or seven, eight, something like that. And I said, you know, I really love living here and I'd really love to kind of get involved in stuff in Europe and, and um, uh, you know, but I'm running out of money, so would you, you know, support me for a while while I sort of try to figure out what I'm gonna do here? Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget. So my dad said, well, I'll tell you what, yes, I will support you, but here's how it's gonna go. If you want me to support you, then you're gonna come back <laughs> to the US and you're either gonna get a job or you're gonna go to grad school or do whatever you want. He says, what do you want to do? I said, well, ultimately, I think I want to go to law school. He said, okay, fine, come back, come back, go to Eugene, go to the University of Oregon Law School. I'll, I'll you know, support you there, and then you can figure out what you want to do after that. So my father was a pretty practical European in that sense. <laughs> so he, 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 liked, he liked the idea of you know, me continuing to sort of educate myself because my parents were both you know, university educated and grad school educated. So he, he was trying to encourage me to kind of go down that track rather than just sort of wandering around Europe endlessly, which I was kind of on track to do. <laughs> uh, so I came back and I went to law school in Eugene, which was great. Um, I mean, Eugene is a, is a wonderful city to live in and study in. And the law school was quite unusual in that most law schools in the United States are extremely competitive. People are fighting with each other for grades. They're, you know, doing stuff to kind of mess with each other. And the U of O is much like actually foreshadowing again the Oregon wine industry, very cooperative community. People helped each other. 
they were interested in each other, they were interested in promoting each other, and so it wasn't a cutthroat environment, it was a very, again, sort of cooperative environment. And again, as I said, that sort of foreshadows, I think, my experience in the Oregon wine industry as well. So I went to law school, got out of law school, worked for a while, then I joined the Stoll Reeves Law Firm in Portland, um, and was doing, um, as a business lawyer, and was doing business work there, and this is about 1980, it was sort of mid-80s, I think, yeah. And, and the wine industry had developed to the point where there were probably, I don't know, 50, maybe 75 wineries. So the industry had now grown from what it had been when I, when I had sort of left to go to school and do all my European, uh, you know, sort of Vanderjara and, <laughs> uh, and came back. And so I said, God, you know, it'd really be interesting to work with people like this. So I thought, well, you know, what I want to do is, um, and there, there really was no law, you know, there was no one who was specializing in wine, although just weren't enough. Uh, there wasn't a business in Oregon at that time for someone to do that exclusively. So I went to the people in the firm and I said, I'd really like to develop a practice working with wineries, but it's not something that's full time. And so the folks at Stoll Reeves were very generous. They said, well, look, just, you know, keep doing what you're doing, your normal business work. And if you want to take time to try to develop this practice, then, you know, that's great. And we'll support you and, you know, we'll give you a little bit of money to take people out to dinner and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I started coming out here, and I would just call people, and David Adelsheim was one, and Susan Sokolblosser, and various people, and said, hey, you know, I'm, you know, young lawyer at Stoll Reeves, I'm doing business stuff, I'm really interested in the industry, you know, I'm from Oregon, I grew up here, kind of telling them a little bit of kind of what we've just talked about, right? And I said, you know, um, if, you, if you're interested, I'd really like to come out and just spend a day with you. And, uh, you know, no, no charge, no nothing, but I just want to spend a day with you. I just want to hear what you're doing. What is this business, the Oregon wine industry, you know? What do you do exactly? Because I, I, of course, didn't know. How does it work? And I said, so what are the issues? What are the problems that you have? I said, I know you're small businesses, so it's probably, um, you know, difficult for you to hire lawyers to solve every problem because that's expensive. But what are, what are your issues? I mean, are your, do you have regulatory issues? Do you have, you know, issues with banks, real estate, water rights, employment? Mm -hmm. You know, you name it, and and um, and I'd say, well, just, and then they'd sort of look at me, and I'd say, well, let's come at it this way. If you could have a lawyer for free for a day, what are the like top five things you would say? I really could use an answer to this. And they would say, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I would write it down. Then I'll go back to my office. That send them an email or write them a letter or whatever. Call them up and say, well, you know, you asked about this and you asked about this. Sort of here, you know, I, I can't, I don't necessarily have the definitive answer, but basically, here are the issues and here's what you should be thinking about. And here's what you should be looking out for and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I did that for a year or two. Met a lot of people in the industry, and then I started meeting. And I would say to them, well, who, do, you know, who do you work with? What, what lawyers? What bankers? What accountants? What, you know whatever, insurance agents, the whole thing. And then I would go call those people, and that's how I met Jack Irvin. Um, and he, he, at that point, already had his sort of full-time um, wine industry accounting practice going. So I started talking to all these people that were, at that time, sort of the beginning of that ecosystem around mm -hmm. the wine industry. Again, just and asking them, what kind of issues do people have? What are the problems? What, you know, what could, you know, what do people need to know so that they don't stumble into big problems? That was kind of my premise, because I knew that people weren't going to, you know, have the time or the money or the energy to sort of spend lots of time with lawyers. So let's help them. Let's figure out how we can help them avoid problems. And then if something really big comes up, they want to sell their business or, you know, they need to do something, having, having trouble with a permit, then, you know, we can potentially help them. And people were very receptive to that. Um, the the one, one funny thing was after about a year or two that Jack Irvin pulled me aside and said, you know, it's really great that you're getting to know these people and, you know, and they're liking you and this is all good. He said, but one thing, when you come out to the valley, 
don't wear a suit. <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, really, Jack? I thought people wanted it. He goes, no, no, that, no, one, no one running a winery <laughs> wants to see somebody you know, in, you know, drive up in a, in a fancy suit and come in. It just, just doesn't really sort of necessarily fit with what people are looking for in terms of people they're working with. So, um, yeah, so that, so that practice got going, and it developed then over the years. One of the big first projects I worked on was when Domain Druin came to Oregon. Mm -hmm. So our firm um, helped them get their project going here, and that was, it was of course, very, very interesting. And we had done work for a, a variety of wineries, Tualatin, I remember working with Bill Fuller, and you know, there were, so a lot of the sort of founder people, we were doing small projects for them. But then as the industry kind of began to really, you know, gather steam, and um, in some ways, you know, sort of, there was financially more and more at stake, then people started saying, well, you know, if I'm gonna, spend 10 million or 20 million or 50 million on something, let's get some folks in there to help us make sure we you know, get it done right. And so we started picking up some really interesting business work, which is more sort of what we did generally anyway. Mm -hmm. And the first transaction I worked on actually was quite interesting was, the, was Willamette Valley's acquisition of Tualatin. Um, and that was quite interesting. Kevin Chambers was the point person for Willamette. It was sort of my introduction to Kevin. He was quite a character. Uh, and Bill Fuller and a guy named Bill Malkmus were my clients in that transaction, and that that really showed me. We came up there was a, there were some specific tax issues there which were going to cause trouble for both parties, so we came up with a, sort of an innovative way to structure the deal. It was called a <coughs> excuse me a reverse triangular merger, which is just sort of legal speak for sort of structuring things in kind of an unusual way, but it avoided negative tax consequences for people. And that was when I saw that you know there really were things that we knew how to do and did every day for lots of large private and public companies that we represented that really could be, you know, brought to bear in the wine industry, even though it was a much smaller industry and the companies were much smaller. And that was really exciting for me to see that we could really we really could help people, mm -hmm. and really accomplish some pretty exciting things. And so during the '90s, then my practice grew and grew and grew, up to the point where I had you know several hundred winery clients. And then I started working in California. And, and in Washington, and then what was really fascinating was through those connections, I started um, getting calls from from Asian and European and and even South American companies saying we want to do acquisitions in the United States, and we're finding that there are really only a handful of lawyers mm -hmm. in the whole country who specialize this. And there, you know, there were three or four law firms down in California and San Francisco and and uh, Napa, and then up here it was really just us and Davis Wright. At that point, and so that, you know, we just started seeing this surge in in business work and in deal work, which was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then it's such a small, you know, it's such a small community of people doing the work. And then so if somebody's in Europe and they're trying to figure out how to do something here, you know, they'll call their banker in Paris or in London or in Frankfurt or someplace, and they'll say, oh, you know, call this, you know, here are two or three people, and they're the ones who are doing it. So, so it just, you know, really kind of took off during the 90s, and then into, into the 2000s, we got to the point where there were now hundreds of wineries in Oregon, and some very large wineries, um, and a lot of interest in, again, with foreign companies in, in acquisitions here. We started doing work for people like, well, just various large international companies. Um, and so that's when, you know, you could just see kind of the steam gathering through all those years. And it was really, you know, what, what's, I mean, to me, what is exciting and remarkable and really pretty much an example of sort of the exciting story of Oregon, really, when you think about it, is that these people came, you know, that 
Lat and Erath and Ponzi and Selkoblosser and you know Fuller and 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 then the people who were here, the Campbells and um, you know the Oak Knoll people and they really there was nothing here. I mean, <laughs> you know they 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 had to create it out of nothing, out of thin air, which is why the whole story. I love the Charles Corey interview that you did with his son, where he was talking about and and Charles Corey is somebody anyway, sort of a slight diversion here, but who I find fascinating because. He, he, he was the person who sort of decided, well, I'm going to be the Levi Strauss of the gold rush <clears throat> kind of relationship, but I'm going to become the nursery that's going to sell stuff. And it had its own issues, obviously, as you, as you discuss in your interview with his son. But, the, you know, I mean, these people really, they, they, there was no, actually, they, no one, of course, knew that it was going to work. I mean, there was every reason, and, and almost everyone in the industry was quite convinced it wasn't going to work and told those people that. And yet they persisted, and so you know you think about what kind of person, what kind of personality does it take to persist against, mm -hmm. you know, everybody telling you that you're wrong and you're mm -hmm. crazy. So you get some really interesting and very driven, smart, but you know, people who are really you know going to try to do something extraordinary, and they and they really did. And that's you know, and that's sort of the same story as people coming across the plains in the 1840s and 50s to Oregon. There was nothing here. You know, you had to start and the same kind of thing. These pioneer people that came all the way across, and so the wine industry was was really a fascinating modern kind of day equivalent of, you know, the Oregon Trail people coming across. And so that's really why I think the industry is such. It, it both fits so well into the story of Oregon, but also you know exemplifies it in the personality of the state and the kind of people who are here, which is really exciting. That's I think what has made the in many ways made the industry so successful, but also so extraordinary, because you really had these extraordinary personalities. It wasn't, you know, if you were an everyday person in whatever, I don't know, suburban Los Angeles, you didn't just pick up and come up here and start a winery. So it took special people with a special dream. And then, you know, and then the specific Oregon part that was so exciting, and this again is sort of part of why wine is, because I spent my childhood listening to my mother and father talking about all these things in Oregon, the cool climate, what did that mean in terms of trees and, you know, fruit trees and Douglas fir trees and ferns and, you know, the whole natural environment. Um, and so this notion of sort of the extraordinary nature of a cool climate at a very northerly latitude and the way it ex I, I, I heard about it as I was growing up as my dad was expressing it through his study of the sort of natural environment in Oregon, but it applied completely then in the context of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. And so this thesis that Oregon would be a special place for wine, like really a lot of these other plants, that's why we had these nurseries, that's why we had this you know, logging industry with all these incredible trees. Really again, so the wine industry, while it's special and as apart from everything that's going on, it really is in the same sort of category of there are these things about the natural environment here that make Oregon special and that, and that make it really be a, a, a place where there's extraordinary opportunity to do something mm -hmm. really special. And so I'll jump ahead a little bit. The, so, so another reason why wine is, in, so in my practice, I worked with um, the group that, that, the Evening Land group that, that uh, leased the Seven Springs Vineyard from, from um, uh, Al McDonald, who we were talking about before, and I was actually representing the group that that that, that leased it from Al. Um, I, excuse me, I was representing Al. Pardon me, and, and adverse to the group that was leasing it from him, because and I'd met Al and had done some work with him, and he's a tremendous character. But again, there's a guy who, you know, he he was the one who figured out that 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 Seven Springs 
location, that terroir there on the east-facing slope of the old Amity Hills was going to be a magic place. Um, so through that project, and then, and then once the lease was done, the, the group that had done that said to me, well, now that the lease is done, um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking with you. You were the lawyer for Al, not us. But, you know, going forward, we want you to be our lawyer because we think, you know, Al had a good lawyer, so, <laughs> so you know, will you work with us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so um, that project, the, 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 the sort of, fa one of the fascinating ideas that they had was for the first time saying, let's, let's look for like a rock star Burgundian winemaker, winemaking consultant who, who, again, we can use to sort of really, you know, use as evidence to people around the world that the Northern Valley is a spectacularly you know, exciting place to make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And so they hired Dominique Lafon of the Comte Lafon Winery in Merceau. And, and Dominique came over and uh, I wrote his employment agreement. Uh, and and we, so we were just sitting like this talking and I said, so, you know, look, why are you here? I mean, you're, you're, fam you know, you're internationally famous. You're one of the most famous winemakers in the world right now. You could go anywhere and do anything. Why are you here? And coming back to this idea of Oregon being remote, I said, look, I mean, we're a long way from anywhere here. I mean, we're 7,000 miles from Europe. We're, I don't know how many miles from Japan. And I mean, we're, we're, we're really at sort of one of the outer fringes of the, of the inhabited world, right? So why are you here? You know, and you could make a lot more money in a lot of different places. And he said, Chris, well, it's really simple. He said, um, in my opinion, the quality of fruit, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay fruit in the Northern Land Valley is the, it's the best quality fruit in the entire new world. Not California, not Australia, not New Zealand, not Chile, not Argentina, you know, he said, it's here. It, this is the place. And it's because, you know, it's, it's right at the extreme northern end of this, of this cool, well, it's at the southern end, I guess, of this cool climate region. But it's, it's, it's just warm enough to get fruit ripe, but not so warm as to uh, diminish the really beautiful natural acidity and the soils that are here and the, this incredible growing season that you have about a hundred plus days where there's almost no rain and so there's really very little disease pressure. All these things combine to make this one of the great places to grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the world. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And this is about 2006 and my dad and I had been talking, so I, I at that point had been working as a lawyer with people in the wine industry for about 20 years, maybe, yeah, was it 20? Yeah, about 20 years, maybe. Um, and so I, my dad and I kept saying, you know, and we would go to France. My father was a huge Francophile, so he, he was, he, he and my mother would be were often in France teaching, and I'd go over and visit with them, and we'd, you know, go do things in Burgundy and the wine industry, and we kept saying, you know, we really, you know, what about doing a wine project? I mean, it has to be small, because, you know, we don't have lots of capital, and we're, you know, we've got other things to do. But, and we kept thinking about it, and, about it. and then when Dominique said that to me in 2006, 2007, I said to my dad, you know, we, we just have to figure out a way to do it. I said, I don't know when we're going to do it. Everybody's already completely busy. My father, you know, I mean, I was just swamped at the office. I said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we just have to figure out a way to do it. Because if we have the good fortune, if I have the good fortune to have grown up in a place that just by chance in our family history happens to be one of the very best places on earth to make great wine. You know, <laughs> let's say, and we love wine and we love people in the wine industry. And it's also, you know, I'd seen with all these guys, David Adelsheim was maybe the best example, certainly a very good example with all these guys. This, it's, it was also a way you could live in Oregon and yet be part of a world community. And that's very exciting. And I'd seen that with my parents, because they had done that through their scientific work, where they were based at Oregon State, and yet they spent lots of time teaching around the world and going to conferences around the world and had really interesting relationships with people on 
many continents. And so you, you could have all of the positive things about living in Oregon, and on top of that, be again a part of a really exciting world community. So looking at that and saying, wow, this, this wine industry, I mean, there's so many things about it that are fascinating and that provide entree to fascinating people and events and places and connection to our Western civilization. You know, there are just so many touch points. And then you, 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 know, you layer that on top of the fact that Oregon is an, you know, one of the absolutely best places on earth to make great wine. I was like, OK, we have, we have to do this. So that's a long answer to your initial question. But that sort of got us to why wine. And then the final thing was, because I had the good fortune of spending most of my professional career being a business lawyer advising people in the wine industry, two things came out of that. One was I, I'd sort of seen pretty much every flavor of the way people would go about doing the business. And I'd seen what worked, what didn't work, why it worked or why it didn't work uh, over the course of many years. Um, and so in, in my own mind, what, I, what I'd come to conclude was that unless you were someone who was extremely wealthy, which I wasn't, <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 what I call the asset light approach is really a great way to start in the wine industry. And, and by that, I mean simply that you, know, you don't immediately go out and spend millions of dollars on a vineyard and planting it and millions of dollars on a winery and millions of dollars on all this equipment. Uh, instead, you take what capital you have and you focus it on buying the absolute best fruit that is grown in the region that you're in, finding the absolute best winemaking team you possibly can, getting the absolute best barrel program that you can, and you know, focusing all of your resources on the wine and the production of just you know, whatever kind of wine you want to make and you know, at whatever price point and whatever brattle, but you know, the focus is on that. Um, and, and so that was, that was really sort of a pretty important kind of seminal concept for me was saying, you know, first of all, I couldn't, even if I had wanted to, I couldn't have done a big real estate heavy play, but just saying that, that really, uh, in my experience, is something that wasn't, wasn't what I wanted to do. And the other piece in that was, having seen a lot of people come in and buy a vineyard and plunk kind of all their focus on that one vineyard, then they were gonna, they, their bet was that's gonna be something great. And, and, it, and, and often it was, but sometimes it wasn't. And if it wasn't, well, you, you, know, you just spent 10 or 15 years finding that out. And so my thought was, well, let's, let's instead, uh, you know, we've got all these wonderful sub-AVAs in the Willamette Valley. Let's go to five or six of these and let's buy fruit from each one of them. Mm -hmm. So we're getting ahead now. This is the, the, you know, the double zero story. And, and then do sort of a comprehensive series, really, of experiments. So this is where I worked with my dad. And we talked about how we would get fruit from all different kinds of, I mean, in order to try and get really complex, interesting wine, let's buy fruit from all these different areas. So we have different sub-AVAs. We have different soils. We have different exposures. We have different elevations. We have, you know, sort of try to get as much exposure to as many different factors as we could, and then vinify those wines, of course, separately over the course of a number of years, and use, and take barrels, and, 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 and you know, and, and take three or four Cooper's barrels in each one of these, and then see which barrels work best, you know, sort of try to break the whole thing down in a way that, and I don't know if this is how people in the industry do it or don't do it, but <laughs> this is how my dad and I sort of, we kind of went at it, kind of like a science experiment, I guess you could say. Um, and, and to make that work, the thing that was really, of course, for me so important was that I just had these amazingly wonderful clients, who I'd, many of whom I'd known and worked with for years. And I said, you know, if we're going to make really interesting wine, 
if, if we can get it, what's going to be really most fascinating is to go to people who have, you know, like heritage vineyards or people who have very special vineyard sites and see if they would be willing to sell us some fruit. And the project started out very small. I mean, our, our, that was my other sort of lawyerly stepwise approach was to say, you know, let's don't start out by making 10,000 cases. Let's start by making, you know, two or 300 cases. And then, you know, let's have a five-year plan. And I mean, I know to some people it probably all sounds way too, I don't know, scientific or business or something. Yeah, unromantic. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was romantic and a lot of passion, but in terms of sort of the planning, I guess that's what I'd say is maybe people think that that's too much planning for the wine industry. But, but for me, um, I was like, okay, that's, that, that way we can sort of make sure we're, we're, we're understanding what we're doing as we're going along because, you know, we, we hadn't been in the wine industry. You know, we didn't have, our family hadn't been making wine for 200 years. I mean, we, my dad and I had made wine in the garage, you know, over the course of 10 or 15 years, but it was terrible wine. So we knew that the two of us weren't going <laughs> to make it work. <laughs> we, I mean, we drank it, but no one would have bought it from us. So, so we said, we, you know, let's, let's really come at this and figure out how we can learn and work and then hire some really great people. But the key was, that we, were, we were successful. We had some people who were friends and clients who were very generous about selling small lots of fruit to us. So we could get great Eola Amityles fruit. We could get great Yamal Carlton fruit, great Dundee Hills fruit, great, you know, um, Shehalem Mountain fruit. And so, you know, we've, I mean, we, 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 we've really been very fortunate. And this is again where this sort of cooperative community approach, kind of going back to, to you know, sort of what I was saying that I'd seen, uh, you know, in, in, in just, I think it's just part of sort of the Oregon way. I mean, when people came to Oregon in the 1800s, everybody helped everybody else. I mean, it's, you had to in order to survive and in order to flourish. And I think that's certainly the approach that people have taken on the wine industry. And certainly people have been extremely generous to us. So we were able to get some really extraordinary fruit. And so, so at the end of the first five-year plan, we said, okay, we've, we've had the good fortune of being able to make wine from pretty, some pretty extraordinary fruit. Now let's kind of move on kind of to the next steps and, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But that was, you know, sort of having each along the way a whole series of individual experiences that caused us to say, yes, it, you know, it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of time and it is going to take some, some money. But we're, we're, you know, this is a place where it's worth taking that jump off the high dive to see what happens. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's also part of the Oregon spirit. And the, you know, and, and the and the Oregon experience. I remember the other. This is a totally different industry, but I can remember as a kid, in high school, when um, Phil Knight came to Corvallis High School, and it must have been like I don't know, 1967 or 68 or something. Literally, he, you know, he had like a station wagon. He had a bunch of shoes in the back of that station wagon, and he went around to every high school in the state to sell kids cross. You know, it was in the fall when everybody's doing cross country. You know, so. And obviously, Nike has turned into a, you know something enormously important and successful. And not not that I'm saying we're trying to be Nike, but but my point is that's really something that's really deep in the Oregon spirit is people having ideas and then just sort of throwing themselves into it completely wholeheartedly. And it doesn't always work, but you know, but that is part of I think the sort of the DNA of Oregon. And that's I think why the wine industry has has succeeded here because it's consistent with that. And 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 having that kind of approach is what you're going to have to do if you have an industry that's starting from zero. Mm -hmm. So um, so I'll just sort of segue to something real quick because I don't know, you may or may not ask me at some point, but almost everyone asks us, okay, your winery is called 
double zero, or what is it called? What should we say? Is it double odd? Is it OO? Is it, you know, and I say, well, first of all, if you're buying it, you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> but I say, actually, what we say is double zero because it's two zeros. And, and the significance of double zero is that we make only Chardonnay and only Pinot Noir. And our sort of operating premise is that, you know, th these 50 years, a, a tremendous foundation has been built. People are doing amazing things. But we came into it and said, you know, what's exciting to us is that the industry is an industry that's very open to and accepting of people really doing their own thing. People do all kinds of things. There's no one way to do it here. And so what that said to us was, well, this is what's really interesting is that we can come into this. And even though we don't have decades of background and we didn't go to Davis, or, you know, all these kinds of traditional ways that people get in the industry, we have some ideas about what we want to do based on wine drinking experiences we have and based on some of the work that my father had done with uh, you know, as a botanist over the years, and we said so. Zero is is the symbol in, in numerology for for null, for the starting point for potential. And we said, you know, we we're excited that we're in a place where people, whoever they are, are are you know, the doors wide open to people to just explore the potential of whatever their dream is, whatever their vision is. And we had this very specific vision of the kind of wine we wanted to make. And it's interesting for us because as non-sort of winemakers in terms of hist you know, historically getting into it, my father and I, um, my father in particular was a really an incredible student of classical music. And every night when I was growing up, we would sit and listen to classical music, which was not typical of most teenagers growing up in Oregon at the time. And, and I, I, you know, as I said, I was an only child, so I mean, I, I was pretty close to my parents, and we would sit and listen to music. And the reason that's significant is that the way my father and I tried to conceive of what we wanted to do was to sort of think of wine like music in terms of sort of a tone. What's the tone that we want to have? And you know, you drink different wines. So like last night, I was having dinner with Ernie Lozen from Dr. Lozen. He has the J. Christopher thing here. And, we, and he wanted to drink Washington Cab and Merlot and Syrah. Well, those wines, you can talk about them in terms of normal descriptors. But for me, as we were drinking them, I was thinking about them again in terms of different sorts of musical instruments or different, you know, different, you know, orchestral versus solo versus quartets and the feel. And to me, acidity is kind of like, you know, sort of violin strings. And I mean, I'm not an actual musician, so I, I mean, I again may not describe it in a way that a musician would describe it, but it's sort of trying to experience the line and sort of see what an impression it creates in your mind as you're drinking it. So that that moment when you when you drink the wine and it sort of you know, it, it, you know, if you close your eyes almost, you can just sort of feel like a, you know, it's not like synesthesia exactly, but it's kind of like that where you kind of just, there's, a, there's an impression which is not the physical thing itself. And so my dad and I talked about that a lot. And so we said, so that's, really, that, that's why we said we, we want something where we're exploring, we're exploring the potential of how to go from these grapes to that sensation. Um, and that was really exciting. And that, so that was the genesis then of the project. Um, and, and the other thing is, uh, it's funny, um, because my father was a big fan of German Rieslings, I drank a lot of German Riesling, have had a lot of really high-end German Riesling, which is why I know Ernie Lozen really well. And there's something about, I think, if, you're, if your initial focus in wine drinking is high-end German Riesling, the acidity and the raciness of that wine, the tension of that wine, I, I, to me, is a perfect kind of introduction to what you want to experience and feel with really great Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's not sort of, it's, it's not heavy. I mean, it's very 
elevated, very elegant, very fine, almost ethereal. And so that's the other thing I look at. I'm always interested when people talk about what, how they got into wine or, or through which wines. And, and it, if people say to me German Riesling, then I, I have a pretty good idea of who they are and what they are. And so that was a really important thing for me. And so we kind of built off of this. And then my father and I love white burgundy, so we drank you know, tons of white burgundy over the many, many years we were together and we're in France. And so that was the other thing we said was, so when we start this project, I mean, we're in Oregon, so we will make Pinot Noir, but our focus is going to be Chardonnay. Um, and, and that came in part out of these conversations with Dominique Lafon. It came in large part out of a back sometime in the early 2000s, uh, Irie, David Lett, and his, I don't remember who his U.S. distributor was at that point, but they did at least one and I think a couple of 30-year vertical tastings of the Irie Chardonnay. And my dad and I were invited by David and by Russ Marga, who's one of the sales guys that works with, with the Letts, to, to one of those 30-year verticals. And we were just, I mean, it was, you know, you know, talk about music. I mean, our heads were just sort of like, woo! I mean, it was fantastic. And so we were like, yeah, I mean, people like Dominique are saying this is the greatest place to make Chardonnay in the New World. And David Lett has made these amazing Chardonnays, which have aged so amazingly. And, you know, so all these things were kind of coming together. And so we said, okay, let's, let's start a project. Let's start small. I went and talked to some people who, you know, who were clients who had these vineyards. They agreed to sell us some wine. And because Oregon, again, is sort of progressive and that you have places, you know, like we make our wine, the Carlton Winemaker Studio, where, you know, you don't have to build a winery. You can go into, the, into a facility like that and for X dollars a ton, you know, you can make 100 cases or 200 cases or 500, you know, whatever you want, basically. Um, and so, you know, we were able to find a place where we could start kind of at a scale that made sense for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, and where we could really focus on and, and, and come to understand through what we were doing in the initial years, what sort of doing different things and sourcing from different places, what that was going to do in terms of the ultimate wine that we were going to produce. And what was that going to mean in terms of those sort of, you know, mental impressions that mm -hmm. we were going to have. And, and the other thing that we said was, um, you know, and this is sort of the lawyer in me too, I said to my dad, you know, we, we haven't studied winemaking. We're gonna learn to make wine and we're gonna make wine, but but what we need to do is we need to find somebody who's just an absolutely incredible winemaker, both to, to have here locally and to have someone really who is, is highly experienced uh, uh, winemaker in Burgundy with lots of experience making great white Burgundy. So let's go find somebody who has worked for whatever, you know, Koch, Rouleau, Ravino, I don't know, you know, just so these, well, the icons of white burgundy. So I talked with some folks and, um, and we were given some names and we interviewed several people and we ended up hiring a fellow by the name of Pierre Millman. And Pierre, uh, long, oh gosh, I don't know how old he is exactly, but I mean, he's been making wine for a while. Had great experiences with some of the best wineries in France and across sort of cool climate uh, Northern Europe, sort of from from the Piemonte into uh, Austria, into Switzerland, into Germany, and then in, in Burgundy in particular, in the Jura. Um, and we talked with him and said, okay, you know, we're what we really want to do is have a project that's focused on Chardonnay. Um, you know, people have been making Chardonnay in Oregon for quite a while. It hasn't been the grape that's been the focal point of Oregon for a variety of historical reasons, but everything that we've tasted and everything that we have learned talking to people there is that that it, you know, it, 
it, it is a, a grape that can produce great, great wine in Oregon. But what we want to do again is sort of try to do something in part because of my parents' European heritage, which is let's look to Burgundy not to copy it or not to try to mirror it or not to try to imitate it, but are there elements to the wine, specific elements to the winemaking process there which maybe have not been widely used here, which, which we can experiment with to try to get us to what our vision is of what the kind of Chardonnay we want to make. I mean, again, lots of people make really good Chardonnay here, that's, and that's fantastic, because it tells you this is a place where you can make really good Chardonnay. So, you know, we were pretty confident about that point, and then we said, but we want to go off and sort of do something on our own, because we want that experience. We want the winemaking experience to be a fundamentally, you know, creative thing where we, we come to learn all the different components viticulturally and enologically, and then we can start playing with them. It's sort of like my analogy was my dad and I skied together from the time I was a little kid and you know when you start skiing you know you're snow first of all you can't do anything and then you sort of snow plow a little bit then you can sort of do stem turns and you start parallel and then the day comes if you do it long enough where you don't even think anymore you're just on the slope and things are happening and you don't have to think oh I want to turn now or I want to do something so for me kind of we, we sort of looked at the winding thing and said you know we're, we're we're still at the snow plow level here when we're starting but but we, but we know that, you know, like with anything, if you are thoughtful and critical and looking and paying attention to detail, you'll figure things out. And if you had coming back to sort of this fundamental idea of, uh, that I had developed as a lawyer was, let's find somebody who's already, they're already, you know, they're already doing all those things. You know, let's don't go hire somebody who's also doing snow plows to help us because, you know, that could be okay, but we're not going to really, you know, get the maximum advantage from that. So, so we were very fortunate in finding someone who's a tremendous consultant, and if you talk with consultants in the wine industry, but also just generally, you know, m many, many people kind of have sort of their way of doing things. They have a program, and so if you hire them, you're, you know, you're gonna be one of the people whose wine tastes like a wine made from their program. And again, that's what's beautiful about the wine industry. People can do whatever they want. If that's the way you wanna do it, fine. What we were looking for was someone who we would talk to again about these sort of slightly, I don't know, you know, abstract, Tone, you know, concepts of tone and texture and things, and and say, okay, this is what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, how how you know, how do you you know help help us? We now we know we think we know what we want the painting to look like or the music to sound like, but we don't know how to actually make that happen. So talk with us about all the different things that we could do to try to achieve that vision. And he was fantastic. He was like, sure. Uh, <laughs> um, although I don't know. This may be something we have to edit out, but I'll just tell you the story because you guys will appreciate this. So as a lawyer, of course, after we had talked this all through, my next question was, okay, you know, what's it gonna cost and where's your contract? And he said, uh, well, here's what's gonna cost. And we were like, oh, okay, well, you know, I hope this works out because that's, you know, we're spending a lot of money on this. But I mean, he, no, he, he was great. And I said, okay, what about your contract? He said, I don't have a contract. And I was like, my little lawyer flag, of, you know, red flag, what do you mean you don't have a contract? <laughs> And he said, I, I don't know a contract. I said, well, how does that work? I mean, how do we know what you're going to do? He said, well, I'll, if you hire me and you pay me, I'll tell you exactly what, what I kind of think is a starting point, and then we're going to work together to actually create this, you know, actual, you know, whatever, um, work plan or whatever you, want, whatever you want to call it. I said, okay. I said, but what if, you know, what if it doesn't work? And what if, you know, what if you go back to France and vanish and take all my money and I never see you again. He said, or whatever, I didn't say that exactly, but that would have been insulted. But you know, what if it doesn't work out or what if it, I don't like the wine, whatever he said. Well, simple, and you, we just don't work together the next vintage. <laughs> <laughs>
And I turned to my dad and I said, you know, if a client came to me and said that they wanted to hire somebody and the person said, I don't have a contract and I'm not going to sign a contract, I would say, yeah, you might want to think about that. That's, you know, it could be okay, but it could be a problem. But um, in, in the wine world, I approach things a little bit differently than I do in my legal practice. In my legal practice, it's about 100% exactitude and 100% being right and no tolerance for risk, period. Everything has got to be exactly right. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the wine is it's much more sort of subjective and fluid and, you know, so I just said, you know, I, I would never advise anyone to do this, but I'm going to say, okay, because <laughs> I'm liking a lot of what I'm hearing and, I, and some people who I really respected had worked with him and said really good things. So I said, you know, it's a little bit of a chance, but let's, let's see. And like you said, I mean, if it doesn't work out well, you know, then you spent some money on one vintage, but you know, that's not the end of the world. So we hired him and, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting journey together. I mean, it's, it's, as I sort of said before, one of the fun things about being in the wine industry is you can be here, but you can also have this cross-cultural experience if you're working with people in France. So it took us, you know, there was a lot of interesting sort of, you know, just like with wine over time, things kind of integrate or that's what mm -hmm. you want. And that's really what's happened with Pierre. We've, so we started working with him in 2015 and that was the first year we made Chardonnay. And uh, like I said, that was the year that Leia came over and made our wine. And every year, we just go through this process of refining what we're doing and how we're doing it and when we're doing it. And it's just been an amazing journey together because our view on it, too, is it's not like a process of trying to get to a place and then you're there and then you stop. For us, it's all about this, you're never stopping. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's fascinating about it, ultimately. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's really great if you have people like that. And so the other thing that happened was right away, because I'm a little bit of a dreamer, I said to him, you know, not only do we want to do this Oregon project, but what we really want to do is have a French project. So can you make wine for us in Burgundy? And, uh, and, and he said, well, like, what are you thinking? I said, well, my favorite white Burgundy is Corton Charlemagne. So I want you to start working with us to you know, source fruit and make the wine over there and under the double zero label. And, um, and he said, yeah, I mean, I can. I mean, it's, you know going to take a lot, but, and we were like, absolutely, let's get going. And I said, well, so can we get started right away? He said, no, you know, it, it's going to take time to find people that will sell and it's going to take time. And, you know, so at this point now, so, so it took, so we started with the Oregon Chardonnay in 15 and 2017 was the first year that we made uh, wine in Burgundy. So Pierre made it for us there and he, and we started, he, he built actually a small winery in his backyard to make our barrels of wine. And now the production has grown to the point where we actually lease the space in Bone. So we have a double zero, I mean, for all practical purposes, winery in Bone. It's pretty modest. It's nothing. I mean, everything we do is very, um, uh, what's the right word? So in German, you say bescheiden, but it's very, um, you know, it's not flashy. It's just very quiet, you know, and really focused on doing something really exciting in terms of quality. Um, and then the, ne the next piece, of course, was I said to him, Pierre, the other thing that we'd like to do is to make Blanc de Blanc Champagne in Champagne. And he said, okay. <laughs> so I said, what we want to do is, since we're on this Chardonnay-focused journey, is we want to make Chardonnay-based wine in the three greatest places to grow Chardonnay in the world, the Northern Limit Valley, the Cote d'Or, or Burgundy, and uh, the Cote de Blanc in Champagne. And so we went to Champagne, and we did the same thing that, that we had done with Pierre, and we found a young Champagne maker named Julien Lanois. 
and in, it was and and so around that same time, 2016, 2017, we started a champagne project. So we've been making vintage champagne and non-vintage champagne there since well that same time period. So that was kind of the big the big dream, and my mother just sort of shook her head <laughs> and said, "Yeah, well." <laughs> You know, you don't get anywhere if you don't dream, but she said, gosh, you know, you're always dreaming your whole life long stuff. <laughs> so, but it was so exciting to have that sort of, uh, you know, to really make that dream come true so that we now do produce wines in those three places. And so for us, what's really exciting, so in total with those three projects, we're probably making a little bit north of 3,000 cases at this point. And we're doing it all under the double zero label. So I don't know, have you guys seen our, seen our mm -hmm. wine? Oops. So. Just to give you an idea of what we're doing. So this is our Oregon label, double zero, and VGW is very good white. That's, that's our, our uh, about eight, 900 case Chardonnay. 100% um, Dijon, Dijon clone, all from the Eola Amity Hills. And, and then we have an EGW, extra good white, which is a blend of, of Dijon and Wenty clone, which is the idea, again, we want complexity. So we're going to see what the Dijon clone tastes by itself, but from several different volcanic vineyards. And then we're going to do the EGW, which is going to be Wenty clone, primarily from the Chehala Mountain Vineyard, and then uh, Dijon clone from the Eola Amity Hills. And then we do, we source from seven or eight different vineyards now, then we do single vineyard. And for the single vineyards, we always just put the name of the vineyard down here. But for our French project, um, we decided, and so this is screen printed. We really like a simple label. And, but for our French project, we decided to do these labels. It's a little bit class, more classic and classy. But we still have the same thing, the double zero, and then we have the name. So we're now doing, I think, four different single vineyard burgundies. So each one of them is double zero and then has the name of the vineyard down underneath it. And we decided, because sort of the, the inspiration sort of for getting into Chardonnay for me was starting to drink Ravino uh, Chardonnay many, many years ago. And the thing, of course, that you love about that is that they had this wax capsule. So I said, if we're going to do a Chardonnay, we have to have a yellow wax capsule. But when we got to Burgundy, we said, you know, the, the, the incredible power of Burgundy, um, we, we want to reflect that in a black wax capsule and then this, this really beautiful textured, uh, textured uh, label. Mm -hmm. So that's, and then the champagne is um, the same thing. But I don't have a champagne bottle here, but it's zero, zero, and then it has, you know, has, uh, uh, Blanc de Blanc Grand Cru Champagne. So, so that again is sort of the driving force here is to say, let's see what happens when you have the same winemaking team really applying the same methods, same processes to Chardonnay from great vineyards in these three absolutely iconic wine growing regions mm -hmm. for, for Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of the double zero story in, in, a, in a nutshell. And so we, so we still, again, we make Pinot Noir and, and, we're, and, and working with Pierre and with some other folks, again, we, we make our wines in a, in, a, in, in a way that we've kind of developed ourselves. And so it's really exciting to see how, and we make the wine the same way in each vintage to see how, and our thesis was, if we make the wine that we have, have, have now crafted this approach, is that going to reflect vintage differences really well? Is it going to reflect vineyard differences really well? We're finding that it really is, it's, it's accomplishing what we had hoped that it would. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, so that, 
That's that was my monologue. You can. It's a good ask. monologue. That's a good monologue. <laughs> Tell me about the reaction, critical and commercial reaction. How, how did you learn to? How, how have you sold wine, and, and how have you found people that right. are excited about your wines? Well, we sell mainly uh, direct to consumer. Uh, we do. We've we. And, and what's. Yeah, so, so we sell mainly direct to consumer, and there we've been very fortunate. And uh, because I've been, you know, my, my dad and I have just known a lot of people around the country and in Europe who, you know, collect wine and drink fine wine. We were able when we started the project, and we we're making much smaller quantities at the beginning. We just you know reached out to the people that we knew, and and we reached out to some some groups of people that we knew who were who were focused on fine wine, and 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 started pouring it for them and it's really been a word of mouth mm -hmm. process and it's taken time and you have to be patient i mean that's that's the thing the wine for wine everything takes forever i mean it takes you know i mean the cycle from picking to release for us is over two years so you know it just it just moves slowly and in terms of you know in terms of private buyers again it just it's this you know it's like a snowball i mean it starts here and then you know and by now the snowball's like this but it was this <laughs> five years ago but it's really been a matter of finding people in, you know, really all around the country and in Asia and, and in Europe who somebody pours them the wine and then they call us up. Um, I don't know if you've looked at our website, but it's by design minimal. <laughs> we actually don't even sell wine off of our website. I think we're, I don't know if we're the only one, but I think we're certainly not the only one of the few wineries in the state that don't, you, you can't buy our wine on our website because we want, we want to know who's buying our wine. And we want to know them, and we want to be sure they're getting exactly what makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. So it's very personal, very curated. Um, and those people then, it's just, you know, the, the, the sort of ripple effect now that we're just getting, you know, calls every day from people around the country. And people are, uh, I think, are, are um, we, we found that people are very excited to taste, uh, you know, a wine where people are focused on doing something that, you know, again, is trying to achieve this kind of tonal quality. And that's, I think people are quite interested in that. And, um, and I think when they taste the wines, what we're finding is a lot of people, um, a lot of the people that we sell our wine to uh, are, you know, are buying wine sort of at the highest levels. And so their expectations are very high. And so they're very skeptical about a new project. So it's taken time for us to, you know, get them excited about it. And then and then what's happened is we've started getting a little bit of distribution nationally and now internationally. We're in, we're in Asia and Australia and Europe because in all those cases, we, we, we didn't reach out to people. People just contacted us and said, hey, you know, somebody had your wine, somebody tasted your wine at this restaurant or at this event, or hey, somebody who we really respect, you know, here in Sydney or in Hong Kong or wherever had your wine. And we've been selling to private collectors in those countries, and so they've started you know, pouring the wines for people. And so it's just this kind of organic process, which is, <laughs> it does take a lot of patience and it just takes a lot of persistence. I mean, I think that's one thing, if you're in the Oregon wine industry, you have to have incredible persistence because it's not an easy sell. I don't care who you are, or what you're doing, you know. Um, but it's, so it's grown that way and that's been really, really exciting for us. Um, and like I said, now what we find is that you know, we've, we're really fortunate. Some of the you know great restaurants around the country and around the world, people have had the wine, so they'll just call us up, and, and we have to get it to them through a distributor or through an importer. But we're able to get placements in places where the people who we want to have trying our wine are dining, and so it's just kind of this slow mm -hmm. process of sort of getting getting it out there and exposing people to it, and that's been that's been really exciting. 
Um, and, you know, we, we keep experimenting. I mean, one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time on is just sort of figuring out, you know, different barrel programs, different aging programs. What happens if you age your wine for multiple years in the same barrel? Does it make a difference? If it makes a difference, is it a good difference? And, you know, so always looking. So we're very curious. And uh, I think, I think, again, coming back to my experience growing up with my parents, they were extremely curious scientific people. So they were always asking questions and wanting to know why and how. And uh, so for me, that's also just a sort of a part of the family legacy to just be engaged, you know, sort of no matter what you're doing, just engaging in that process of being constantly curious and questioning and looking for things and experimenting with things and, and, and making wine and producing wine, I should say. And, and of course, all the viticultural stuff is just really a big, a big part of that. Um, and it's a great, sort of, it's a great venue to, to be exercising those kinds of, of, uh, you know, whatever approaches. Mm -hmm. But I think, I, but but I'll, I guess coming back to your commercial thing, I think one of the exciting things to us is again our thesis was that even though I forget what the numbers are exactly, I think it's something like I don't know, a couple thousand acres are planted to Chardonnay in Oregon right now, so it's it's tiny. What is it like thirty plus thousand that are planted statewide? It's, it's a pretty small percentage. So what we found is that most people that we run into in the United States have, have, have never had an Oregon Chardonnay. In fact, they don't even, a lot of times people are surprised that there is Oregon. They think of Oregon as Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. So, we, so our experience is that there's a you know, huge market for it because people don't even really, most people haven't even been exposed to it. And so you've got, of all those people that are buying wine, I and mean, they all know about Oregon Pinot, but they don't know about Oregon Chardonnay. And a lot of those folks are, are pretty excited about the prospect of having a really delicious Oregon Chardonnay that's you know high in natural acidity, but is really balanced, has some nice tension, some nice minerality, all the kinds of things that people are looking for in making their Chardonnay here. So we think there's a, there's a fantastic market for it. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I guess sort of the debate that we've had with a few people in the industry is you know kind of even looking at the possibility that at some point down the line Chardonnay will be. You know, 10, 15, 20 years will be viewed as being on certainly on par with Pinot Noir in terms of the quality of what people are making here, and in terms of just the commercial appeal. But we we definitely have seen an extraordinary uh, amount of interest in mm -hmm. in our in our Chardonnays. I mean, we we love making Pinot and sell really great Pinots too. But we're really focused on on Chardonnay again because it's something that just isn't as developed as mm -hmm. as Pinot Noir, and so it feels like there's more room for people to to do different things. But I think, you know, the Oregon, again, coming back to sort of my point when we were talking before, I mean, yeah, people have been making wine in Oregon for 50 years, but the reality is that there's so many people in this country who have yet really to come to know Oregon Pinot Noir. And, you know, a lot of people are doing great things. I mean, you know, I mean, Domaine Serene, Domaine Drew, and a whole bunch of people have done a really good, you know, A to Z, King Estate, everybody sort of getting Oregon wines out into the marketplace around the country has, has you know, brought a lot of attention to Oregon, but but again, the exciting thing is there's still so many people who haven't experienced Oregon wine or, or aren't really that familiar with it, and so that's a huge market opportunity. But I think everybody around the country knows about Napa and Sonoma, but how many people know about the Willamette Valley? And I, 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 th I mean, my our experience going around the country is that fewer people know about it than we would, I think, expect. Because <laughs> I mean, living here, you just think everybody knows about it, but then we go to you know, you go to Texas or I don't know someplace, and people are like. Mm -hmm. So that's again. I think that's a, that's a huge opportunity mm -hmm. for for really everyone here. Mm -hmm. Although, as you know, it's interesting um, listening to. I think it was Doug Tennell's interview that he did with him, where he was talking about how you know, 
for people who are starting a project today, it's a really steep climb. I mean, it's always been hard, but I think he himself said, you know, I, you know, what I did back in whatever it was, 80 something, early 90 something, you know, I don't know if I could do it again today. And so that, that's, even though there's a huge opportunity, it's just so, so much competition. And it's just so difficult, I think, for people to get started in the costs, which is why I really, coming back to my asset light model, uh, I like that because it's a way for people to really develop a brand. And once you, as you're developing, once you've developed a brand, then I think, you know, having an estate or having your own winery where you can do things exactly the way you want will help you elevate your product even more. But at least then you've got that established versus being under the financial pressure of having spent all that money and then have, because everyone, I can remember when I first talked to Jack Irvin many years ago, he said, you know, the reality is it's going to take on average seven, eight, nine, ten years for everybody, even if they, if they make it at all, to make it to break even. So you've got a long slog, <laughs> uh, and then with things just being more competitive today, it, it, I think it's very difficult for people to start projects. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, like I said, huge, huge opportunity. So tell us about about Catherine and her role with Double O. Yeah. Double, sorry, Double Zero. <laughs> Yeah, so Catherine is, is and this again, is a, I think it's a fascinating kind of story. So Catherine and I have known each other for, I don't know, seven or eight years. We've been married for three years. Um, and she'll tell you herself, but one of, one of the funny stories for me is she said, you know, when we first met, you know, we, we were just sort of in the starting phases of this wine project. She said, if I had known that you were going to, that my life was going to be 100% consumed by this project seven years later. I'm not sure if I would have taken the same, <laughs> taken the same path. It's just so I'm kidding. But yeah, no, I mean, I don't think, and I, neither, neither of us at that point, I think, had any kind of clear picture that we were going to be where we are today, which is just like, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing this. But, but um, and she'll tell you herself, but, but what's really interesting and exciting, I think, for us is, first of all, um, we love doing it together, which is fantastic. That's 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 very important, of course, and it's a fantastic vehicle for us to to to. We have very different but complementary skills. I'm still sort of pre-digital, <laughs> whereas she's highly uh, she's a software developer and has spent a lot of time working in the technology industry and is you know just just a brilliant person and just has you know all of the sort of tech. I mean marketing and technological and entrepreneurial skills because she worked for startup companies for a number of years. Mm -hmm. So so her sort of skill set is perfectly complementary to mine. Um, and the other thing that's so fascinating because we are, you know, obviously different different in different age demographics is that um, you know we've everybody in the industry is trying to figure out how to connect to people sort of 25 to 45. Well she's in that demographic. So so she is 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 very, very adept at at, at sort of finding, interacting with people in that age group who are looking to, um, uh, you know, to sort of begin a life of collecting fine wine. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm sort of in the demographic of the people who have been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years. And they're excited about the project because they've been doing it and have been experiencing some really amazing wines. And now they hear something new that maybe could become part of their world. And so we have a really nice combination there. Um, and, I, and I'd say just, you know, she has tremendous energy and tremendous excitement about the wine and is very, I think, and she, you know, and we both share this just intense curiosity about how to make this project kind of keep going and what we can do to improve it. So I'd say her, her, her overall temperament and approach to things, she's, she's very autodidactic, so she can just 
Now she's just done this amazing job, for example, of organizing all of our compliance systems with a company. And I mean, there's just no way I could do it in 100 years. I mean, the, the, the stuff that just, you know, all these programs and apps and templates and all this kind of, I mean, I, I could never do it, ever. Um, which would have meant I would have just sort of sold, like Geerath, I would have sold wine out of, you know, the back of my car or a, or a card table in my garage or something. <laughs> uh, so that's been really fantastic. So for us, in terms of the business, and she's really running the business day to day. I'm actually still working at Stoll, so she's actually running the business day to day, which is really exciting. That I think the industry is a place today that's more and more receptive to women running these businesses, and not. And you know, I, I think historically, uh, they, you know, women were sort of slotted into certain aspects of the business, and today that's changing. Um, and I know in terms of our customers, both uh, both our private buyers and our and our distributor and and, and importer and people, they're very excited to, I think, to work with young women. And that's, you know, we were just talking with somebody who I think is going to become our English importer. And they were saying that their staff, the age of their staff, average age of their staff is 27. And most of those, their staff are women. And so for them, it's fantastic to have, you know, the business person they're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis be a woman who's, who's, who is, you know, the CEO of the company, and but is also somebody in their kind of, you know, closer to their age demographic. Um, so we're very excited about that. And I think that's, you know, that's really an exciting thing that the Oregon wine industry can do too, is be a vehicle for those kinds of opportunities and also to, to demonstrate that it can be done successfully. So you'll, you'll talk to her more about that when you definitely talk to her directly. Definitely. So I'm curious, after all those years being around the wine industry and seeing all the projects and, and being part of acquisitions and being mm -hmm. part of, I'm, I'm sure, some pro seeing projects come and go, what was it like having a bottle with, with that was yours? What was it like having a bottle that was yours taking out in the marketplace and, 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 and then being prepared for people's reaction? I'm, I'm curious <laughs> what that felt like after all that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, the answer is that it's, of course, an entirely different experience when it's your name, your brand, your child or whatever that's that's on the line and um I, I fortunately as i said to Catherine, fortunately if you spent 40 years being a business lawyer you're, you know you're you've been in a lot of situations where people aren't being necessarily very friendly or kind toward you <laughs> so you have a little bit of a thick skin that way but it's it's absolutely impossible for people and i know for me to not be you know highly sensitive to people's comments mm -hmm. you know I mean, if people are negative about your wine, it hurts. I don't care who you are. You can be the most famous winemaker on earth, I think. And in fact, we were watching a, a podcast with uh, Lalu Bizlovov, and she said, you know, even today at age, whatever she's on the seventy-something, she says if she gets a bad review or someone doesn't like her wine, she cries. <laughs> so it hurts. I mean, there's just no way around. And, and it, for various, for you know, many reasons. One is it is your thing, and you're putting yourself out there in a way that people just don't normally in mm -hmm. everyday life, right? I mean, you, you know, people are judging you and it's you, <laughs> right? And so it's a, it's a very personal dynamic. Um, and, you know, it's, it's I, I think one of the things we've tried to do is if people aren't positive, we try to, again, sort of turn them to positive by trying to understand why, you know? So for example, at the simplest level, people will, so we don't do we we don't do tastings uh, or or we don't have a tasting room we don't do tastings, but when we're in a situation where we're pouring a wine for a private client or a potential private client in some setting, um, you know sometimes people will say to us, well we don't like Chardonnay, at all, and and 
and, and in particular Oregon Chardonnay because Oregon's all about Pinot Noir, so we're not even going to try your Chardonnay. You know, that's kind of like, like mm, you know, that, that's kind of our thing. And then you have to sort of decide what do you do? Do you just, you know, say, okay, fine, we'll just pour your Pinots, or do you say, so what we say was, well, also, why, why don't you want to try Chardonnay? I mean, is it because you haven't found Chardonnay as you like, or it's because, who knows what? And so if you can sort of get information from people where there's a negative, that's, that, that tends to be the best thing we can, that we can do. But it's, it's, it's no fun, you know, and if somebody, some reviewer writes up your wine and says, oh, you know, it was too this or it was too that, that's, that's hard. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no question about it. But again, I mean, we're, we're constantly sort of kind of learning and trying to, and what we're trying to do is to get to the point or this process of continually getting our wine to the point where we're excited about it. And then just saying, you have to realize that if you're doing something that's distinctive, a lot of people aren't going to like it. <laughs> um, so what you really are trying to do is to find that thin tier of people who, for whom that really resonates. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, we're in a constant state of trying to do that. And the best way that we found to do that, of course, is these people that have had our wine that call up and say they're excited about it is, then we want to know, well, who, you know, who are your friends and who, you know, who are the people that you're drinking wine with? And, and, and so that you find people, you know, it's sort of really kind of, like I guess, a matter of sort of trying to discern people's palates. And if you, if you make a wine that, is, that, that, that is, resonates with a particular kind of palate or person has a particular kind of wine drinking experience, then you're just in search of those people. And since we only make, you know, 3,000 cases of wine a year, we don't, I mean, you know, it, it, it's probably going to be a pretty thin tier, but... We're, we're fortunate that we've been able to find a lot of people who, for whom these wines really do fit into the range of what they're looking to experience. Or maybe it's outside the range of what they've experienced, but it still sort of you know, grabs them in a way that excites them about it. And I guess that's what, when people say, well, what are you really looking for Well, in a wine? Or what do you want people to experience? I mean, I know what I want to experience in it is if it's a wine I've never had, I want to drink something where, again, it just sort of registers a note in my head rather than, oh, this is a glass of wine. Well, it sort of depends. I mean, if I'm you know, just eating something quickly and I want a glass of wine and I'm not really focused on it, that's one thing. But if someone's really focused on the wine, I want it to be sort of like a little, you know, whoop, a little balloon that comes up inside. They're going like, hmm, you know, that, that, there's something there. I, need, I want to figure out what that is. And I think that's something that Oregon um, really is a place that, that there's great potential to, I mean, people are doing it, there's great potential to do it and to do more. And I think in terms of a category, that's not by any means Oregon's only category, but I think because we have such a distinctive of, uh, you know, sort of overall sort of ecosystem here, we have the opportunity to make wines that are distinctive in a way that I think isn't true everywhere because we've got that that cool climate edge and, and, and acidity and tension, that's sort of the trigger, I think, for all those kinds of, of, of sensations. Mm -hmm. but, but on the other end, not, not everyone wants that. I mean, there, there are tons of people who want a 15% Cabernet from somewhere, and that's, that's what they want to drink with their dinner. And that's great. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, I mean, I don't think that's not something we're about here, and I think, I think that you just, have to then look for those people that are kind of looking for that experience. Mm -hmm. So you talked, you talked earlier about some of the things you've seen in the industry. You mentioned the Domaine Drouin coming in. You mentioned before we talked about Jackson family coming in. Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of the, the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you've been around it pretty much from the start. Um, what, is, what are the biggest changes from sort of beginning to now? And, um, and what do you see as you look ahead for the mm -hmm. industry? Right. 
Well, that's a hard question. And I'd say, you know, the, uh, I'd say the biggest changes really kind of come down to, um, I think I, pe people now have enough, 50, they do have 50 years of experience, not everyone, but I mean, as an industry, they have 50 years of experience. So I think people do have a pretty good idea of, not in any final definitive way, but a, but a better idea of, you know, what are the what are really great places to grow fruit. I mean, when Dick Earhart talks about when he came here in 19, what it was, 68, and was flying in his Tektronix plane around the valley with his topo map trying to figure things out, you know, that, that was a very early stage. Now we've got, you know, the Willamette Valley AVA, we've got, I, I don't know how many, 14 or whatever it is, different sub-AVAs, and, you know, so we've come a long way in terms of defining what maybe some of the best, and there are probably still things to be discovered. I think South Salem Hills is gonna, is certainly gonna come on, but so, but we've, 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 we've kind of, you know, we've gone from like knowing, having an empty map, mm -hmm. to now having a map that's starting to be filled in. So I think that's very important. People understand a lot more about soils. They understand a lot more about exposures and you know, sort of figuring out what elevations make the most sense for different kinds of varietals and different clones and different rootstock and you know there's just much more definition whereas I think at the beginning it was Charles Corey showing up in a pickup truck and saying here's some vines what are they don't know you know I mean it was just a very early stage and we've come a long way now there's still a long long way to go but we've really come a long way so I think people uh, you know have the ability I think to make more sort of nuanced and, and decisions based on actually some known things mm -hmm. right now that's a big thing um, I think people's winemaking, literally their ability to make wine, I think is definitely, you know, I mean, I don't know, improved is maybe not the right word, but I mean, I think people again have a, a much clearer picture today of how they, what kind of wine they want to make and how to make that and, how, and what things to do in the, in the vineyards, you know, the whole, you know, whatever, vine, row spacing, mm -hmm. clones, rootstock, this, that, the other thing, you know, buy, you know, the whole sort of organic biodynamic thing really, I don't, I mean, I, I wasn't talking to people about their vineyards in the 1960s, but I, you know, what you, when you look at it, all, all of that stuff has advanced so far. And I think the fact that people are really, have, have realized that, that we have this tremendous resource here and by doing these organic and biodynamic things, even if you're not doing it in an absolutely sort of ideological way, but you're sort of employing sort of those practices has really created a, you know, I mean, a big jump in quality in both quality of the vineyards and the quality of the fruit. And I think from a commercial perspective, it's also really enhanced this idea that Oregon is doing something that's very special and very much at the high end. It's not just a commodity kind of product. And I think, not, not that the people in the 1560s thought that they were doing that, but I think if you look at the wine industry, a lot of it is sort of a commodity product. And Oregon is very much an, an, you know, an artisanal, very fine sort of handcrafted product, which now has a lot of different elements to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, people understand a lot more about barrels than they did. I mean, look, look at the equipment people use. You, know, you listen to the interviews in the archives and people were using old, you know, I don't know what, you know, tanks from dairies and, you know, I mean, all kinds, you know, old Coca-Cola, stainless steel drums and all kinds of stuff. So I think the advances in, in equipment, barrels, everything, just, you know, tr tr tremendous. And you look at the skill of the people in, you know, uh, in, in viticulture. I mean, just I'm just looking at this recently. I mean, like people like the Ponzi's. I mean, they have these tremendous vineyard teams. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just do a fabulous job in the vineyards. And I think it's not that people didn't. I think people just didn't in, in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s just didn't have any experience. They were just starting to learn. And so we're now 50 years into 
this learning process. We're not, you know, probably all the way at the apex, but, you know, come from here to somewhere in here. And that, again, reflects, a, I think, a lot of experience and was allowing people to make much better wines. Mm -hmm. You know, I think looking ahead, I think, I mean, I think that's just going to, first of all, we're going to find more areas. Um, you know, people talk about South Salem Hills or Cascade Foothills or, you know, wherever. I mean, people are, there's going to be more definition of high quality um, viticultural areas and the wines that you made from them. Um, you know, you see a lot of people um, planting and making wine from, you know, a, a number of different varietals. I think we're going to keep seeing that. Um, I think that's something that is, I mean, potentially very interesting, both to the winemaking community and to, to, the, to customers around the country. And I think people are going to try to figure out what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge going forward, I think, is going to be figuring out how to grow high-quality grapes in, a, in an environment which, as it, if, if in fact it becomes less and less of a cool climate, what is that going to mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the, you know, I can remember, like I said, when I was a child, I'd go down to Northern California with my dad, and I remember being in Napa and Sonoma in the 50s and early 60s. And, and today, the climate we have here feels a lot like that felt back, you know, whenever that was, that's a long time ago, whatever, I don't know, 50 years, what it was, 60 years. Um, and, and, and Napa and Sonoma, you go down, we were just down there meeting with some people in the industry talking about amphora fermentation ideas for red wines. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like North Africa. I mean, it's really much warmer. And so, you know, I think they've shifted from the, from the, from the, from the grape growing zone they were in to the next highest one. We've gone from sort of being in the coolest category here in Oregon to like zone two. Mm -hmm. And if that continues, then what, you know, what are people going to do? And, and another, of course, huge change is just where people plant grapes. I can remember at the very beginning, back in the 80s, people would come in and say, well, we're thinking about buying land at the top of the Dundee Hills. And everybody said, well, you're crazy. You're never going to get grapes right up there. No way. Same thing with like where Kevin Chambers planted his Coosa Vineyard up at, you know, top of the Yola Hills. That's, you know, a thousand, whatever it is, a thousand feet, right? And everybody, I mean, they still say that probably today, but, 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 you know, 30 years ago, it was sort of, you know, it was, it wasn't even a question. The rule was you don't go above, you know, 500 feet or whatever, you know, whatever it was. So people are now at a thousand feet, you know, there's not too much more room to go, I don't think, in the, in the Lyman Valley, but, uh, you know, but then I think we're going to see things in the coast range. That's why we were talking about the Stardance Vineyard. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a cooler climate it's you know it's it's an east facing slope and i don't remember the elevation exactly i think it's like five or six hundred feet but it's definitely because it's further west and closer to the ocean um, you know people are going to be exploring those kinds of things to see so that that's going to be probably one of the biggest challenges i think in how people figure that out and i think we're just going to continue to see people planning higher there are going to be changes in vine and row spacing and you know leaf pulling and you know all, all, all kinds of viticultural things but that's that's a huge challenge because you know, when you fundamentally, when you taste a Pinot Noir from Napa or Sonoma, and you taste one from here, there's just an immediate difference in tone. Again, I mean, it's it's a heavier, deeper, typically more sort of alcoholic impression, just because there's just no way they can retain the natural acidity we do here at the at, at you know at the point where you're harvesting grapes. So, what are we going to do with that? Is that going to persist? And how are we going to deal with it? Um, and then I think the other big question going forward is: Are people how, you know, how are people going to continue to increase exposure to Oregon wine around the around the country and around the world? And 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 I think one of the ways it's going to be through Chardonnay. I mean, I think Pinot Noir is, is 
is already pretty well understood. I think there's you know there's more to be done there. I'm sure for the people that are focused on Pinot, but I think I think the Chardonnay varietal is going to be a way to really um, you know expand people's interest in in Oregon and you know particularly as Burgundy becomes just astronomically expensive and really unaffordable for all but, you know, whatever, a very tiny percentage of people. Oregon Pinot and Chardonnay, definitely. I mean, we see that in, in sales to people who are saying, well, you know, we buy your wine. What, what, we, what we would, you know, buy as a, potentially as a comparable Burgundy wine is like 10 times as expensive. And it's just getting to the point where we just, I mean, we're just not going to spend, you know, $800 on a bottle of wine. Right, or maybe one time a year, but 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 that's a huge opportunity I think for Oregon. And you look at what people are doing with the Chardonnays. It's there's a big, big market opportunity there, and and it's it's there at different price points. But I think the other thing about Oregon that's exciting is that our experience is that there is a market for Oregon wine at the highest price points mm -hmm. nationally and internationally, mm -hmm. and that's a that's a sensitive topic and it's complicated in a lot of different ways. But I think our thesis from the beginning was. There is definitely a market there, and and it's and it's the, the challenge is to figure out just who, who those who are those people and where are they, and how do you find them in you know whatever mm -hmm. various states, cities around the country, and, and overseas. But they're definitely there, and and that's so important because um, one of the things that I have seen through my practice that I don't think people I don't think consumers know at all or understand is. For, for people to make wine in the Northern Willamette Valley, it obviously is tremendously labor-intensive. It's very expensive. And at the prices that a lot of people are selling at, it's, it's, it's very difficult to make a living and, and to keep that business going unless one of the spouses is working outside the winery. And, and what that means is that you're really sort of maintaining kind of a price ceiling really at the expense of people's livelihood. And, and, then, and then in turn, their ability to pay their vineyard workers and their people in their tasting room a living wage, because if I if I if I can only sell my wine for thirty dollars, then I you know, and I'm selling most of it through a distribution channel. I'm getting fifteen dollars a bottle. I, I just I, you know, then I've got to make very large quantities of wine. And if the typical Oregon producer, average Oregon producer, is sort of making five thousand cases, it's really a tough economic challenge. And I think people don't see that, and so when they're when they're putting pressure on the wineries to, to maintain current pricing levels, I don't think they do it intentionally, but it has a very significant impact. And I know we see it when we're when we're uh, you know when we have sort of seasonal workers. So when, when we, so when we make our Pinot Noir, we do something very different from what everyone else does. We bring the Pinot Noir and we take each cluster, we snip each individual berry off of its own little pedestal, and then we take those intact Pinot Noir berries and put them in a 500-liter Italian clay amphora and let that ferment in there for three weeks, and then we press it off and put it in barrel. Well, we have to hire sometimes 20 people. Because when that Pinot Noir fruit comes in, you've got it. You know, we've got to process it right away, and you've got tons of Pinot Noir fruit sitting there. And it takes ten people about five hours to snip enough berries to fill one of those M4. And we have ten of those M4, and we're just constantly working through them. And so, you know, I, I mean, we pay them. I don't know, twenty dollars an hour or something. I mean, we're paying way above the minimum wage, and and part of it is because we, you know, you just it's you have you know it's expensive to get people, but it's also because we're like people should. I mean, and even that. I mean, it, it's. It's trying to say, look, we, we, we should be running our, we want to run our business in a way where we feel like we're paying people money in a way that they can actually figure out how to live, mm -hmm. you know, reasonably well. I mean, not, not that you could, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, 
I mean, it's hard even on a 20 or whatever dollars now, but, but at least they're not getting you know, minimum wage. And so, but, but to do that, you, you, if you're selling your wine for 25 or $30 a bottle, you, you, I mean, you, you really probably can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so what's the role of the industry going to be in terms of, of figuring out this, this price quality ratio, but also the pricing as it then affects what people who are working in the industry can get paid and what kind of opportunities people are going to have mm -hmm. to do different jobs. And if you're talking about, well, geez, what you want to do is to give people opportunities to move through the sort of experience level to being able to have their own businesses and their own wineries and their own vineyards. Well, it, it's, I mean, if, if you're just, you know, getting paid at the lowest wages, and I don't, I'm probably going, maybe we're going to end up cutting this out because it's politically touchy issue, and I'm not trying to tell people how they should run their businesses or anything, but I'm just saying what, what I see is a lot of people who are buying wine around the country are putting a lot of pressure on Oregon wineries to, to, to maintain really very low pricing, and they're very resistant to price increases, mm -hmm. and that makes it very hard for the people running those businesses because they, I mean, they have to sell their wine. And so how does that all kind of play out? And I, I mean, that would be sort of, I don't know, maybe that's something people at Linfield are looking at right now, but I, I think that's a really big challenge for the industry going forward is figuring out how to sort of educate the consumer, but also develop a strategy to say, you know, we, 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 we have to, well, you don't have to, I guess, but say, is, is our pricing allowing us or is it keeping us from doing things that are important in terms of accomplishing other objectives beyond just mm -hmm. sales in terms of the community of people that are involved with this industry and, and the communities more generally um, here in the Willamette Valley or anywhere that's a, that's a wine growing region. That's a good answer, I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate talking about that. Um, I'm curious also from your perspective, uh, you mentioned DDO coming in as a big, big first mm -hmm. step, and obviously, again, Jackson County coming more recently. Um, what has been the main appeal? Has it been people seeing what Dom LaFon saw in terms of grape growing potential here, or is there something else appealing about Oregon when it comes to foreign investment yeah, or so it, outside yeah, of Oregon yeah, investment? So there, there are a couple of things. First of all, I think people, yeah, first there had to be the, either the recognition or the willingness to sort of test whether this was in fact one of the premier grape growing regions in the world. And you know, the, the, the Druins coming in, of course, was a result of you know, some of those tastings I've been done where the ivory wines showed really well. And also the Druin, I mean, Royal Bear Druin traveling in the United States on sales trips and coming through and sort of seeing and, and seeing, in a sense, kind of the same thing my parents saw, which is, wow, this looks an awful lot like, you know, sort of France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, you know, it's, it's kind of valleys, these kind of agricultural areas, these kind of hillsides. It looked like the kind of place that, you know, people were making really great wine in Europe. So, that, so there was that, I think the recognition that you know, physically this looked like the place and the growing season, all those things. Um, and then I think just take, you know, tasting the quality of the fruit and, and the wine. And then finally, um, you know, Oregon is a place that is receptive to, I think, people coming in and doing experimental kind of things and really welcoming of people um, in a way that's, that's you know, I think is, is a testament to the character of the people here. Um, yeah, and then, I don't know, what's the last thing I was going to say? Um, I, I guess just purely sort of economically, it's relatively affordable for people coming in in terms of, not quite so much these days anymore, 
But you know, still relatively speaking, the cost of land, the cost of development of vineyards, um, the cost of supplies, the cost of labor, I mean, the availability of labor, the availability of water, um, although that's obviously becoming a really much more difficult issue, but but it's a, it's it's a it's a yeah it's it's a it's a place that's attractive to people who are in, who are wanting to come in. I think the general, particularly for interesting enough, what we're seeing is particularly in Europe, a lot of folks that have very well established family businesses there have a lot of issues in terms of inheritance and taxation and and how things work. And so for them, it makes a lot of sense to establish a separate business here mm -hmm. that's independent of that structure. And this is a place where they can do it. So you can be, you know, I mean, well, I mean, you look at the people who are here, and that's one of the big reasons that they're doing it. So there are there, there are a lot of things that make Oregon attract. You know, you can make super high quality wine without a lot of the sort of difficult issues, legally, financially, politically, um, that you might have in other other parts of the world. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. And people, you know, we're seeing it with like Bollinger coming in and buying Ponzi, and they're. You know, there, there, there have been a lot of transactions. There are many more brewing right now. You're just going to see, a, you know, a steady drumbeat of people coming and investing here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think, in part too, the, the pricing is interesting. I think people coming in from the outside look at it and say, you know, we think there's an opportunity to continue to make very high quality wine, but to market it and sell it at higher prices, which will make the businesses more profitable, which will allow for more reinvestment. In, in facilities and business and and, and employees mm -hmm. and that's so it's, so it's really attractive at a lot of different levels mm -hmm. to people and there's you know there's still a lot of land to be planted I mean it's you know you go to Europe or you go to a lot of places and it's you know the wine producing regions are just like wall to wall vineyards here you know you drive around and in fact a lot of Europeans when they come in they're like where are the vineyards <laughs> I mean the Dundee Hills are pretty well planted but you know in general it's not you know it doesn't look really like wine country over there so. Lots of lots of you know undeveloped land and mm -hmm. lots of things to be discovered. So tell me about the future for yourself and for the company. So obviously uh, you're still still kind of getting started with with Double Zero. What what are the next steps and what are you looking forward to for yourself uh, in the next in the coming years? I think then you know the next steps for us are to really fully develop our French projects. Those are those are sort of. Couple of years behind what we're doing here, um, we, we now have our partners there. We have vineyards, Grand Cru vineyards that we're sourcing from, and it's it's a matter of sort of building that out to kind of where we want to be in terms of growth, um, and also then um, really developing our private customer understanding of those European products and and, and sort of running those through our. Um, so we have an allocation list, mm -hmm. and so you know, adding those to people's uh, allocations, and they're very excited about those wines. And so I mean, I think we're going we're 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 looking forward to doing that. But that's all sort of over the next. That's sort of the next five years is getting the European stuff completely up and running and fully developed, and then developing sourcing so that we're really operating on allocation method for those, and that will. Um, and Catherine's really the person who's in charge of that, and you'll be talking to her in a minute. Um, I think in terms of Oregon, the next big step for us is going to be, we've already been looking at this, is we're going to continue to buy this really great fruit, particularly from Heritage Vineyards, sort of 50-year-plus vines, because we're making fantastic wine for them. But we will be, um, over the plan is at some point over the next five years, acquiring and, and developing an estate vineyard program. And that, 
I'm pretty confident it's going to happen. We've already got some properties identified that we're sort of working on. Uh, the final piece of news is going to be, is it really going to make sense for us to build a winemaking facility? And, and we haven't decided. I don't know. We really like being at the studio. I mean, there are always, you know, it, there are always advantages to being, you know, in your, in your own home versus a condominium, which is kind of what the winemaker studio is project. Um, but for right now, that's working really well for us. And, I, I, you know, we're going to have to see whether it's worth really ultimately makes sense for us. But we, we, we definitely want to have an estate vineyard. And the biggest reason is that we really view this as a long-term project. So Catherine is 30 years younger than I am. The, the, the plan at this point is that she is in sort of a long-term mentorship right now, <laughs> working day-to-day -day with me and with other people working on that she will be over, over the next five to 10 years getting to the point where she's kind of really completely running all aspects of the business. I mean, I'll always be involved, but that then that's gonna be sort of her, her kind of legacy project is to, mm -hmm. to carry that out for you know as long as she wants to do it. And you know we, we've just established a lot of great relationships with, with private buyers, with distributors, with importers, so all of that. She's really working with all of those people. And actually they're very excited about the fact that there's, that's sort of our succession plan, mm -hmm. um, that, we are, that we have thought about it and that we've implemented that. And it, is, it, it, it generates a lot of confidence in them because they look at me and go, well, you know, if you're only gonna do this for another five years, then that's, you know, like I was saying, this this, this company in, in, in England who have a bunch of 27 and 30 year old people there. I mean, there's a guy who's my age. He's probably not going to be doing it for that much longer or may not be, I don't know. But, but you know, they're really looking for long-term relationships and continuity as are we. And that's really one of the, that's really the principal way that we're addressing that. So it's mm -hmm. very exciting. And it's also great because as I was saying, what we're doing requires a lot of patience, but we're really looking at it as a sort of a 30 year trajectory. And so, you know, we're, we're just kind of doing things very carefully and thoughtfully and intentionally as we go along to sort of be sure that the structure that we have already erected and as we refine it is going to be something that really is going to be sustainable for the long term. And we're, we're, we're really excited about that. I think that's, that's again, uh, something that being in such a beautiful part of the world and a place where you can make really great wine, it's definitely a fantastic platform to be putting in place a long-term project. Mm -hmm. And that vineyard then will become sort of part of our, you know, kind of grand experiment. And Ryan Hannaford is probably the guy that, we're, that we will use to develop that. And we've already talked a lot with Ryan about all kinds of experimental blocks and different kinds of plant material and different kinds of row and vine spacing and different kinds of, you know, just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like everything in the wine industry. It's like this huge multi-dimensional, you know, whatever game where you've got all these pieces and different levels and they all affect each other. And so we really want to implement that in the vineyard as well. But it only makes sense to us if it's something that we're going to be doing mm -hmm. long term, because what we really want to see is how do all of these things that we're experimenting with really play out after 30 years mm -hmm. or over the course of 30 years or, or, or longer? Because when, when, we're, when we're getting this, so for example, we're really excited. We get this original vine, Pinot Noir, that Dickie Rath planted in the Shale Mountain Vineyard. So was, those are the first sticks he put in the ground in, in 1969 when he, when he planted. And, you know, that wine for many years, I'm sure, was interesting. But today, I mean, that 50 plus, we, I mean, that wine is just absolutely sensational. And so we want to have our own experience of, you know, seeing how what we uh, plan for and, 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 and plant and then grow and maintain sort of all the years. What does that mean 
-hmm. particularly when we're comparing it to some of these other places that we're getting fruit. Mm -hmm. So that's I think that's our that's our future, and you know we're I think really excited, of course, to be here, but also excited to have this sort of you know three-legged stool because there's lots of change coming in Burgundy, lots of change coming in in the Cote de Blanc and Champagne as well. And we're working with people there who are very like-minded to us, very curious, very experimental. And so we're going to be seeing how you know the future plays out really on this, again, sort of multi-dimensional playing field for us in terms of geographically. Mm -hmm. So that's, it just keeps it so interesting. You've got all this stuff going in these different places. Then at each place, you have all these different tiers of things going on. And yeah, it's really, it's really very exciting. And then, you know, I mean, we, we work a lot with, and Catherine works a lot with, you know, many of the, you know, sort of the younger people, Tomasov, you know, Ryan, all these guys who are, who are people that are going to be doing it also for the next, whatever, 30 years. And so it's really exciting to, even though we're just pretty new to the, to the actual production business, but being able to already have some pretty exciting relationships that, again, span, you know, multi-generations. And there's just a lot of great people here, and it's a great place to be sort of doing this experiment. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and again, coming back to the market, I think there's just, you know, I mean, as people have done, so, you know, David Adelsheim, Selko Blosser, Lad, all these people, I mean, they've just created this absolutely sensational, you know, platform for people to, you know, keep pushing the, mm -hmm. the Oregon story forward. Um, and, and, and like I said, of course, we're particularly focused on excited about what that means in terms of Chardonnay. I mean, that really is going to be, I think Chardonnay is going to pull deck and neck with Pinot Noir, and that's really going to be fun then to see people, you know, really develop that and then see how the market responds to it. But we're really excited about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you can tell, I mean, we're, this, this is something that for me is... Uh, uh, it, it's just been so exciting to kind of go from working with the industry as an advisor to then transitioning into being a participant while continuing to be an advisor, and then at the end, sort of transitioning to being kind of in the thick of things. It's um, it's very different when you're you know when you're sort of giving people advice versus being the person who actually has to do it. But it's uh, it, it's really exciting, and and I mean it's both a lot. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of financial risk, of course, but it is just such an exciting thing to be doing in this place mm -hmm. at this time. So all the questions that I have for you today. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, I think you've, your questions were great. I think we've pretty much covered everything there was to cover. We're just, again, thankful to all of you for doing this. It's great to be a part of this project. Glad that you're doing it. And now um, give Catherine her chance to sit in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. I appreciate your stories today. And we're going to let you off the hook. Okay, thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.